What I like to do in this first period, and I do this often for the first session of gospel meetings in what is ordinarily the Bible study period time, I like to look at what I call some keys to effective study. This is not unusual, but ju- it was just a couple of weeks ago that there was a middle-aged lady that uh, said to me, she said, you know, she, she said, I, I know a, a lot of different things in the Bible, but she said, I have no idea how it fits together. And um, we know that's true generally in the world. People have no idea how it fits together. But oftentimes, even among those that are Christians and are studying the Bible, um, there, there's still a lot of room for improvement. But not only that, we want our study to be effective. I, I've had people say, well, you know, I'll read the Bible, and then I get to the end of the page, and I, I can't tell you what I've read. And, and there, there are some things that we can do that I think will really be helpful to us in our Bible study. You wouldn't be here this morning if you did not want to be a better student of God's Word. If you didn't want to know His Word, you'd, there are many other things you'd find to do. So um, that's what I want to talk about for this first period. What, what I have found and what I've tried to utilize in my own study that I've found helpful and that I love to share with others. The first point that I want to make, if you don't mind, I'd like to just cover from Genesis to Revelation as my first point. You know, in about no more than 10 or 15 minutes. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was waste and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters, and God said, Light be. And light was. And there was evening and there was morning. Yom Echad, day one. So in six days God created the heavens and earth and all that is in them is. Of course on day six he made man and uh, made Eve from a rib from Adam's side placed them in the beautiful Garden of Eden, and they could eat anything as they were charged to dress and keep the garden except that one tree of which it was forbidden, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Satan came into the garden. Jesus said in John 8, verse 44, that he was a murderer from the beginning. That means at the beginning of creation, he went into the garden to murder, to take the souls, to slay the souls of Eve, And Adam, I put it in that order because Eve was first tempted, and then Adam. But sin entered the world. And God could have waited longer, theoretically, but he didn't. As soon as sin enters the world, what we see is that that ray of hope emerges that reflects that before the foundation of the world, God had already determined the plan to bring Christ into the world. That's why he's called the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. And so actually speaking to Satan who had tempted the first couple to sin, in Genesis 3, verse 15, God said, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between her seed and your seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now that's using the language of poetry. But the seed of woman would come, and she would defeat Satan. She would be the one, that is the seed, he would be the one, the seed would be the one who is Christ, to give us victory over Satan and over sin. 
A lot of passages say that without the poetry. For example, Hebrews 12, 2 and verse 14 tells us that Christ became flesh. Then it says that through death he might bring to naught him that had power over death, that is, the devil. But it's important to remember that Genesis 3 and verse 15 is the first promise of Christ. And the rest of the Old Testament is concerned, and that's what gives it unity, because you see those generations in chapter 5, and they're traced from Adam through Seth down to Noah. And by the time we get down to the days of Noah, and, and that lineage, by the way, is the lineage of Christ. But by the time we get to Genesis 6 and verse 5, the text will say that every imagination of the thought of man's heart was only evil continually. This is when God determined he would destroy all flesh in whose nostrils was the breath of life. But in verse 8, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And so in keeping with God's directives, he made the ark, just like God said it, and eight souls were saved. Noah, his wife, three sons, and their wives. Time goes on. We have another generation in Genesis chapter 11 that ties in where Genesis 5 left off. Genesis 11 takes Noah's son Shem and traces it down to Terah, who's the father of Abraham. This is when we get to the period of the patriarchs. Abraham was given three very important promises. I'll make of you a great nation. To your descendants I will give the land of Canaan. And in thy seed shall all families of the earth be blessed. Now that blessing promise is Christ. It's the same as Genesis 3.15. But see, we learn more. Because as Jesus would say in John chapter 4, salvation is of the Jews. And so there would be that special nation that would descend from Abraham through whom the Messiah would come. And the significance of the land is they have to have a place to reside. And so God chose the land of Israel. That was a land bridge that connects three continents so that ideally as people nations of the world would be traveling they would be coming in contact with people that knew God and they could learn about the true God but unfortunately as 1 Samuel chapter 8 will point out Israel will become like the nations round about them but the patriarchs Abraham Isaac and Jacob these promises were given to them and of Jacob it's going to be Judah through whom the Messiah will come Genesis 49 verse 10 speaks of that. But time passes on. And so what happens is in the days of Jacob and his sons, after the, the famine had struck Canaan and God had, had in his providence put Joseph in the position of second in command to Pharaoh, the family moves there. But as time went on further still, there's another Pharaoh that doesn't know Joseph. So when we open up to Exodus, they're in that period of bondage. And this is when God appeared to Moses and said, I'm mindful of my covenant, and by a mighty hand I'm going to take my people out. Now, the ten plagues had to occur. And let me give you a couple of key verses. Chapter 6 in Exodus 6, 6, and 12, verse 12. That's so easy to remember, isn't it? These passages say, against the gods of Egypt will I bring my judgments. So it's not just that's how God got Israel out of Egypt. It's also in the process that his name was glorified and his, the contrast between him and the false gods Egypt worship was made very obvious. So what happens is we're on our way to the land of, 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 
of promise. But we first get to Mount Sinai, and there the law is given with its uh, commandments and ordinances. The priesthood is established, and the tabernacle is built. And now it's time to move on and take possession of the land. But though there were 603,550 men of war numbered when they got to Kadesh Barnea, and it was time to go in, and the spies came back with their report, only two, Joshua and Caleb, were ready to go and take possession of the land. The rest of the people, their hearts melted, and they said, let's, let's stone Moses and Aaron and get a new leader and go back to Egypt. And that's when God came down in Numbers 14 and said, your dead body shall fall in this wilderness for the next 40 years. So all of those men of war, more than half a million, died in this period of wandering except for Joshua and Caleb. Moses then died, the servant of the Lord, in Deuteronomy 34. And then, as Joshua 1 continues, under the leadership of Joshua, the land will be taken. So the conquest, the book of Joshua is kind of a one-point book. God gave Israel the land that he promised. What happened, though, after the days of Joshua, and those, the elders that outlived Joshua, the Bible will tell us in Judges 2 and verse 10 that there arose another generation, who knew not the Lord, nor the mighty works that he had done for Israel. And they turned aside. They served the, the Baal gods. And so this period of Judges is, is a cycle where they will lapse into sin. God will allow an enemy to punish them. He loves his people. He did that to draw them back. They'd cry out to the Lord and say, help, help, we'll put away the false gods. He sends the deliverer who delivers them from the enemy and then the text will say there's peace till the judge died. Then it'll say, again the children of Israel did that which is evil in the sight of the Lord. And so that cycle continues. The last of the judges was Samuel. And he's the one that anointed Saul to be the first king. Saul succeeded then by David of the tribe of Judah, who was given the messianic promises in 2 Samuel chapter 7. So, David, he succeeded then by Solomon. That's the United Kingdom. There were just three kings. And this is the only time it's easy to, uh, to remember, uh, it's this easy to remember something about the king period, and that is they all reigned for 40 years. When you get to the divided kingdom, Solomon died. Solomon died in the year 931 B.C. to give you time, uh, a feel for time and the kingdom divided. And so you're going to have 19 kings in Israel from Jeroboam all the way down to Hosea. And every one of them is going to say they did evil in the sight of the Lord. None of them were good kings. Some of them reigned for a longer time. Some of them reigned very short time. Zimri only reigned for, 70, for seven days. But it's, it's, a, it's a tumultuous time and it's a downward spiral. Judah has some good kings, but it's still the direction is downward. Judah also had 19 kings, plus wicked Athaliah, the usurper. And so that goes again from Rehoboam, Solomon's son, all the way down to Zedekiah. So following the, de the, uh, the, the destruction of Samaria, Israel fell first, and the, so that leaves you, Judah, alone. Hezekiah was the king when this took place. He's a good king. But still... 
you, you go down in time and, and you still have that apostasy. Manasseh. Manasseh is Hezekiah's son. And he reigned for more than 50 years. And he caused his sons to pass through the fire. It was a terrible, terrible time. And there was no turning back after Manasseh. God said he would also take Judah away. But not altogether. They're going to go into a period of captivity. And a remnant would return. After 70 years they returned. They rebuilt the temple. They rebuilt the walls. And God's going to still go ahead. Men were unfaithful. But God was faithful to his covenant. And so all during this time he still has that in mind. And even in that period that is silent as far as more revelation is concerned. By the way, Amos 8 and verse 11 foretold those silent years. God said he would send a famine on the land. Not a famine of bread or a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the word of the Lord. That's Amos 8 and verse 11. And so that famine took place. There were no prophets going about in this intertestamental period. When Malachi put down his pen, that was it. In Malachi chapter 4, verse 5 and 6, he foretold the coming of John the Baptist, except he didn't say John the Baptist. He said, Behold, I send Elijah. And um, when the New Testament continues with its revelation in Luke chapter 1, the angel Gabriel quotes from that very passage and speaks of the son that Zacharias and Elizabeth would have in Luke 1 and verse 17. He says, He shall go forth in the spirit and power of Elijah. So God never forgot his purpose. Now, a lot of important things happened in the meantime, but I won't go into that right now. But God used that Persian kingdom and the Greek kingdom and the Roman Empire to make for what is called in Galatians 4 and verse 4, the fullness of the time when Christ came. Or as Romans 5 and verse 6 says, due time or due season. So the time was optimal when Jesus came. And so Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John tell the story of Jesus coming, of his life's work, and especially of his redemptive work, which it all was about, and his, the cross crowned by the glorious resurrection, and then before ascending into heaven, giving the great commission. And the book of Acts then takes up right at that point. In fact, Luke wrote Luke, and then he wrote Acts. And in Acts 1, he just takes right up where, before Jesus ascends, connecting this with the gospel account. The former treaties have I made, O Theophilus. So he, he connects that with what Jesus began to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up, after he had given commandment to the apostles whom he had chosen. So the book of Acts is the book that takes up with the Great Commission, the establishment of the church in Jerusalem, and then the growth and spread of the church to the uttermost part of the earth. And with the writing of the gospel records and the history of the book of Acts, and then Romans through Revelation, the letters to the churches and sometimes individuals, the sum total is we have all things that pertain to life and godliness. But see, this book is telling a story. It's all connected. And so in the Old Testament, someone is coming. In Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, he has come. The, the, the promised one has come, and he did what was prophesied of him. He fully accomplished the Father's will. And Acts, the first chapter, those men that stood by in white apparel said, You man of Galilee, why stand you gazing up into heaven? The same Jesus that you have seen going shall so come again in like manner. And so 
Acts 1 through Revelation 22, he's coming again. And here's what to do to make ready for that day. Now, that doesn't make you an expert in the Bible. But if you have this as your skeletal outline, your study is fleshing it out. Because what this means is, wherever you're studying, you know where it fits. And so I found that to be important. Just, it doesn't matter what place you're studying. If you've got this as your background, you're working, you're working on this basis, then that, that is so very helpful. So that's my first point. Okay, now, ready for the second point. Now we want to talk about the prophets. The prophets, there are, this is a Bible class period or am I doing a sermon? Okay, Will, how many books are there in the Old Testament? How many books of prophecy are there? Okay, I'm sure glad he knew that. All right, 17 out of 39. Well, now if there were 34 books, you'd say that's exactly half. So we were not going to say exactly, but out of 39 books, 17 are prophets. We say that's approximately half the Old Testament right there. But when you think about it, the, the prophets, it's sort of like that. Am I speaking for you as well? For most of us, the period of that divided kingdom, it's so hard to get a handle on all that. And also the prophets. How do the prophets fit in? Which one goes with which period? And what is their message? And so again, what are some things that will help us? And much of this is just, it's, it's where do you start so that you're positioned right. A lot of times, something might be kind of complex, but if you say, okay, where do we start here? What's our beginning point? Well, that's a lot right there just to know where you start. And uh, if, uh, that, so I, I approach a lot of biblical topics that way. What, what's my starting point? Well, with the prophets, I want to know where they fit in. Now, having said that, the first two of, of the prophets that I'm listing here, Obadiah and Joel, are a bit more difficult. It's a little more tricky because, see, with the rest of the prophets, it may be that in their first sentence or two, they'll tell you who was, who was reigning. And it might even be there's such specificity like Jeremiah and Jeremiah the first chapter will say he was called in the 13th year of King Josiah's reign. Well, if you know when Josiah reigned, he started in 640, reigned to 609. So 13th year, we're, we're looking at approximately 627 B.C. that Jeremiah began his work as a prophet. That's going to be very helpful to know that because He's going to be doing his work before Daniel and before Ezekiel, and he'll be doing his work on uh, some years after. Uh, his, his book will reach down to about 561 as far as the last reference that is made in the book of Jeremiah. So, but anyway, I start, what I started to say about that is that with Obadiah and Joel, with neither one of these do you have a king mentioned. So it's... For this reason, uh, students uh, and teachers such as uh, Homer Haley, uh, Bob and Sandra Waldron and their, and their material, uh, Robert Harkrider, there's several others that, that you would have access to their materials. But anyway, they, they put Obadiah and Joel in the ninth century and give reasons for that. But you will also find good students that, that make arguments that it should be at another time. So for our, I say that, but I do have to make that qualification just in, in all fairness, but the rest of them we, we, we know, so that's the, only, that's the only caveat there. So in the 8th century B.C., you've got Jonah, 
and Amos and Hosea and Isaiah and Micah. Now the 8th century is going to extend into that time of Judah alone. Israel fell, Samaria, in 722 B.C. And so Isaiah began his work before that. He's going to say in Isaiah chapter 6 that he was called to the prophetic office in the year that King Uzziah died. Uzziah died in the year 740 B.C. So before Israel fell in 722, Isaiah is doing his work, but after the fall, he continues to do his work on into the days of King Manasseh, perhaps to about 690 B.C. But you take Amos and Hosea, they were just sent to the nation of Israel, exclusively up to Israel in the, as the days of the divided kingdom were declining. And by the way, Amos was not from Israel. He was a southerner. He was from Tekoa. And Tekoa is south of Bethlehem. So he was way down south. And that's why he, it'll make sense for you to know when they told him, you go back down. You, you, you know, we don't need your kind of preaching up here. Don't preach against the king and this altar. You go back down to Judah and, and eat bread. And he said, I was not a prophet. And I was not the son of a prophet. I was a herdsman. And I was a tender sycamore fruit. And the Lord said to me, you go and prophesy. Now you hear the word of the Lord. So Amos just fearlessly cried out against all that apostasy that was taking place up there. Hosea did too. But Hosea lived God's message. Hosea married a woman that became a harlot and had children by another man. And after all that, he took her back. And that symbolized God's relation to Israel and how God was crushed by their adulterous, his heart was crushed by their adulterous behavior. And yet, he would take his people back. Those who were not my people shall be called my people. So, again, and also it's a time of great prosperity that both Amos and Hosea are dealing with. But anyway, got to move on. Seventh century. So now you see we're in the days of Judah alone, Nahum, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah. And what I found next that it's helpful to do after that is to look at the prophets by captivity because that's the next period. So, so far we're doing them by centuries. That's seventh century. When you come to the, to the uh, nation of Judah, there are three waves of Babylonian invasion. Daniel was among the youths taken by Nebuchadnezzar in 605 B.C. But see, you already know Jeremiah started his work earlier, remember, in 627. So Jeremiah was in Jerusalem during that time, and he witnessed that first invasion. Then there's the second invasion in the year 597. This is where it talks about Ezekiel being taken and dwelling with the captives by the river Kibar. But I, I put Jeremiah last, not because he comes after them, but making the point he was there before them, but he, st he stayed in Jerusalem. He wasn't taken away. And so he witnessed the 586 destruction of the temple and of Jerusalem and also wrote the book of Lamentations, which tells about things Daniel didn't see and Ezekiel didn't see. The siege mount, the famine, the pestilence, people starving to death, people eating their own children. Jeremiah witnessed that. So it's just real helpful to know where the prophets go and connect with their message and the Bible periods that we surveyed in the first place. Now there's only three more. 
And these three men are post-exilic prophets because after the return from the exile, you've got Haggai and Zechariah, whose main message was, got to get busy. I know you've run into opposition, but it's the time. Don't say it's not the time to build. You build, rebuild the temple of the Lord. And they got busy. Incidentally, by the year 516, the temple was built. Last of all is Malachi, whom we have just mentioned. So, does that mean you're an expert on prophets? Well, no. We're not saying that. But isn't that kind of handy? So, what you have done, once you have this, you have your notes, and you, you, know, you review this, and it becomes part of long-term memory, and beyond recognition, you reach the point you can recall, it's very handy because you've got a framework for the prophets for nearly half the Bible right there because um, half the Old Testament scriptures is what I meant to say. And that's how they fit in. Now let's go to the New Testament. We mentioned a while ago the four Gospels. What I found very helpful in the New Testament is to look at the seven periods of the life of Christ. Kevin, I was trying to remember the, the, the year you were there. Was I, was I in, the apostle, in, in, in the book of Acts with the Apostles or the life of Christ? Or do you remember which? You were the geography of the life of Christ. Okay, all right, okay. So I may have looked at these seven periods the, uh, the time that you were there. I'm not sure. Uh, I would think I did. But anyway, seven periods of the life of Christ. And, and what this does is it gives you a seven-point outline for the four Gospels. The longest period is the period of preparation because Luke chapter 3 is going to tell you that Jesus was about the age of 30 when he began to teach. So everything before he begins his ministry, we're grouping in this word preparation. For example, I've already mentioned the appearance of the angel Gabriel, Luke 1. I love that chapter and the, the specificity that's there. It says that he stood by the right hand side of the altar while Zechariah was burning incense, here he is right before the altar, and on the right-hand side, right there, the angel appears to him. I've got good news for you. Well, that's preparation, the announcement of the birth of John. The angel appearing to Mary and showing how she would have that important role as being the spirit would conceive within her. The virgin conception and birth would occur. Well, that's preparation. The angel appearing to Joseph when Mary becomes expecting, and, and the, the angel saying, while Joseph is thinking about putting her away, don't do that. What's conceived within her is of the Holy Spirit. This is fulfilling the prophet Isaiah, which said, Behold, the virgin shall conceive, and shall bring forth a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel, Isaiah 7, verse 14. But all that's preparation. So Jesus' birth, the announcement to the shepherds, the flight into Egypt, they're going into Nazareth, at the age of 12, the trip to Jerusalem, and those are the things we know of Jesus' life. And then the preaching of John, when John comes. And even Jesus being baptized, he's not teaching yet. Baptized of John, and you remember what happens immediately, the Spirit impelled him to go into the wilderness where he is tempted. He hasn't started teaching yet. So you see, even the temptations of Christ will take us through that period of preparation. But then Jesus begins his ministry. John, the first chapter, we're indebted to the Gospel of John for the early ministry of Christ. It's only found in the Gospel of John. Sometimes it's called early Judean ministry. Sometimes it's just called early ministry. But see, it's not all in, it's not all in Judea. For example, 
uh, he, he does call some of his disciples and he's introduced to them. He gives Peter, Peter's name, Nathaniel comes to see Jesus. Uh, they're, they're, the introductions are made in the latter part of John 1. In John chapter 2, it's going to say his first miracle, the beginning of his signs in Cana of Galilee, the water to wine at the, Mary, at the, uh, at the wedding feast. So that's in Galilee, but leaving there, he went to Jerusalem. He cleansed the temple. Uh, that's how chapter 2 ends. And chapter 3 of John begins by talking about Nicodemus coming to see Jesus by night and the conversation they had. But then it's going to point out that as Jesus' ministry grows, he's making and baptizing more disciples than John, though Jesus himself baptized not but his disciples but that's when in John chapter 4 Jesus said let's go to Galilee but the text says he must needs go through Samaria not the usual route but on the way to Galilee he stopped he sat by the well had that wonderful conversation with a woman of Samaria led her to a point of faith in him as the Messiah and many believed there in Samaria that's why he needed to go to Samaria but you continue in John chapter 4 by the time you're at verse 43, you're in Galilee. So the next period is the Galilean ministry. But see, when you're reading Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that's where they start. It's John that supplies what happens before the Galilean ministry. And, of course, this is so much of Jesus' teaching, like the Sermon on the Mount get, belongs there. Uh, the, the parables, like in Matthew 13, that list, that belongs there. So many of his mighty works um, three cities are specified in Matthew 11, Chorazin, Capernaum, Bethsaida, where he did most of his mighty works. They're all Galilean cities, but there were many more. The raising of the widow of Nain from the dead. So Galilean ministry. But then the time was getting by, and Jesus needed to spend some time just with the apostles. And so this is a period, if you take your atlas and your Bible, you'll see Jesus is all over the map because he's trying to find a place where the crowds would not know where he was so he could be with the apostles. See, he's, you, you'll see in the same passage, you'll say, let us go to some remote place, but then they find him, like in John 6, and that's where he fed 5,000 men plus women and children. That's not exactly being alone. But that happens in, in other places. He goes to the Decapolis later, and same thing happens, the feeding of the 4,000. It's not until he gets to Caesarea Philippi that it will say from that time he began to show to his disciples that he must suffer many things, be betrayed, be delivered to the Gentiles, and be crucified, and on the third day raised. In the context of Peter's great confession, Jesus promised to build his church. But see, all, all that, before that he's tried several times without success to be alone, but there in Matthew 16 and the parallels that finally work there. And following that is the Mount of Transfiguration and what happened there. But Jesus then is on the eastern side of the Jordan in the area known as Perea for the last six months. And sometimes this is called the closing of his ministry or late Judean. It's in Perea, but he will make trips into Judea even though his life is in danger because the authorities have already determined to put him to death. The fact is he, he knew he was going to die. He came for that purpose. In John chapter 12 he says, for this purpose I came to this hour. But it would not be the people's whims or their impulses that would determine when. In fact, 
You may recall a conversation where the rulers are discussing this, and we're allowed to eavesdrop on their conversation, where, where we're going to kill him, but, but not during the feast, lest there be a tumult among the disciples. Remember that statement? But God in heaven said, yes, during the feast. It'll be on the day of Passover, when devout men from all nations of the world will be there. It'll be on the day of Passover, when the Lamb will be slain for the sins of the world. The Lamb that takes away the sins of the world, to use the language of John 1 and verse 29. But what I'm saying is to understand why he's in Perea, what he's doing. Well, he's ministering, he's teaching, but he's waiting for the time that in the Father's timetable, when he would cross the Jordan, go through Jericho, make his way to Bethany, and then from there begin that final week of ministry, busy week teaching in the temple area, temple complex, but staying at night on the Mount of Olives. And then, betrayed, crucified, but on the third day raised from the dead. And what's going to happen is that Luke will tell us in Acts the first chapter and verse 3 that Jesus spent 40 days appearing to his apostles, speaking to them of things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Tells you how long and what they were talking about. But you also know we just said he's crucified during Passover. You know what's going to happen at Pentecost. The Spirit will come. The gospel will be preached for the first time. The church will be established. The beginning of, uh, of everything takes place there. But see, between Passover and Pentecost, you've got 50 days. But 40 of those belong right here. You see, these are the post-resurrection appearances. So, what I'd, uh, here again, that, that doesn't make, it make you an expert in the life of Christ. But just knowing that, let me show you how that will help you. One drop-in-the-buck example. Drop-in-the-bucket example. In Luke chapter 19, when Jesus is on his way leaving Perea. He's on his way to Bethany and to Jerusalem. And you may remember that this tells the story as he's passing through Jericho of a short man, a man of short stature that climbed a sycamore tree to see Jesus. And Jesus, knowing his heart, honored his faith and said, Zacharias, come down. He said, salvation has come to your house today. And Jesus was criticized because he was a publican, a chief publican, and Jesus said in Luke 19, 19 and verse 10, in response to that, to that uh, criticism, he said, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. But I have, um, I remember one time I was hearing a good sermon, and it, it was dealing with Zacharias, kind of a character study, and it was talking about obstacles he overcame. He was short, so he climbed up in a tree, and all these people, and, and, and the, the speaker said, you know, we don't know if Jesus be, be passing that way again anymore. We don't know if that happened or not. But uh, we know for sure he took advantage of that one opportunity. Well, okay, there's some, there, there's some good lessons there. But actually, if you, if you understand the chronology and you have your Bible open, you won't, you won't say that. Here's what you'll say. You'll say, when Jesus was walking that Jericho road, that road from Jericho to Jerusalem, you can say this with confidence, he would never pass that way again. 
You can also say when he was walking, the weight of the sins of the world was crushing down upon him. But he had time to minister to someone that most people, most Jews would have hated. And he spent time with him in his house that day. What happens is, you recognize Zacharias sees the opportunity, but you end up saying, what a Savior. Because it's about Jesus and how he took the time at what was the most inopportune time for him to be ministering to people like that, but he took the time to minister as he did to Zacharias. So just knowing when that happened and not just, yeah, I've heard the story about this short man, but no, knowing where to place that. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem to die when that took place. So it tells you something about Zacchaeus seizing the opportunity that, that would never again be there. That's true. But it tells you something about the heart of Jesus that right down to his last minute here on earth was seeking to seek and save that which was lost. Well, in my closing two minutes, I've got another point or two to make. Here's something I found helpful. See, we started with a big picture. We're, we, we started by giving an overview of Genesis through Revelation. Then we looked at the prophets, 17 of the 39 books. Then we looked at the life of Christ, the gospel records. But then it's time to study individual books, and there's some things that will help you with that. For example, I said a while ago, the book of Joshua is kind of a one-point book, a key, a key verse. If I were to say, what's the, what's the key verse in the book of Joshua? You'd say, oh, that's probably where the walls fell down. That's an important verse, but that's not a key verse. Joshua 21 and verse 43 tells us that the Lord gave unto Israel all that he had sworn to their father Abraham. They possessed it, and they dwelt therein. Verse 45 says, There fell not aught of any good thing that the Lord had promised. All came to pass. You see, what this is saying is God fulfilled the land promise that he made to Abraham. That's the key verse. That's, that's a summary verse. That's telling you what that book is about. Same thing in the book of Job. The theme of the book of Job is not so much suffering. It's about suffering. But as Satan, the false accuser, appears before the Lord, and God says, have you seen my servant Job? How he walks blameless and upright before me. There's none like him upon the face of the earth. Ha, that's no big deal. You think he serves you for nothing? Look at the blessings. You take away the blessings, he won't serve you anymore. God said, just don't hurt Job. And what happens is catastrophic loss of property, loss of wealth, loss of all of his children at one time. And as he grieved, he said, the Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And all this, Job, sin not, nor charge God foolishly. Satan says, now, have you seen my servant Job? That without cause this has happened? But you said I couldn't touch Job, skin for skin. You let me at him and we'll see what happens. And God says, just don't kill him. And that's when Job was stricken with boils, grievous boils, from the crown of his head to the sole of his feet. He would be so emaciated by that disease that when his three friends came from the east to sit with him, they didn't recognize him at first and sat seven days speechless. 
And when the conversation starts, it, it gets, goes from bad to worse. Job, you have sinned if you'll just confess it. Yeah, this, this will get better for you. And you see Job making statements like in Job 13 and verse 15, Though he slay me, yet will I serve him. In Job 19, verse 25, I know that my Redeemer lives. You see what the book of Job does as no other book in the Bible. It shows that God is worthy of our service and devotion and love and our all. Not because of what he gives us, but because he's God. And there's no other book in the Bible that asks and answers the question in that way. Well, my time is gone, but I'll tell you, you can, what you want to do with the various books of the Bible, when you, you know, it's a matter of training your eyes, know what to look for. But a lot of times they'll tell you, like over in Hebrews chapter 8, the last verse there, he tells you. He says, now the things that we're saying, this is the main point. So if you want to know what's the main point of the book of Hebrews, you look at Hebrews 8 verse 1, he says, we have such a high priest. There's no other book in the Bible that deals with the priesthood of Christ as the book of Hebrews does. Okay, so you can, you can kind of see that um, when you develop some skills like this and you're reading with, with, a, with a trained eye, um, and I'm going to close with this point right here, you, you, you can then look at, as you look at a passage, is there a command to obey, an example to follow, a sin to avoid, a promise to receive, is there a prayer to make my own? Are there other lessons? I will assure you, you start with the big picture. You understand the prophets, the ministry of Christ. You're, you're looking at key verses, see what this book is about. And then as you read, you're, you're, you're training yourself to ask with this. You will never get to the end of the chapter and say, I didn't get anything out of that. And so the, these are some things that I found to be helpful, and I'm so glad to share with you. Kevin, I think our time is gone, so let me say thank you for your attention and um, looking forward to the remainder of the gospel meeting. Thank you for the good start.